Tonight's reading of God's Word is from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. For even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, sorrow, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. This is the word of the Lord. Before I begin, let me just just ask you again. We are still looking for... A storyteller for the kids and uh, a door greeter. And uh, it's a really important part of our church, sharing the good news with these little ones. And if you can help, uh, please let us know after the service. A friend of mine dropped uh, a book by uh, around Christmas time and uh, took it home. And it was, uh, I'll confess, a lot of friends drop books by. <laughs> and I don't. Usually read them. But this one, um, <laughs> except for yours, Turner. I always read I always, all of yours. All of yours. Um, <laughs> and this one, I looked at the cover and I thought, ah, I don't want to read that. But it kept, it kept uh, staring at me. And uh, I wound up sitting up most of the night one night uh, finishing it. And it was uh, a writer who interviewed about 100 women in their 30s who had been a part of evangelical youth groups in the 90s, and uh, they experienced uh, shame and not grace. And I am a pastor whose church had uh, those youth groups, and so reading the book broke my heart. It was like those talks with your adult children when they say, Dad, I know, I know you intended that um, for good, but it really hurt me. I don't think the book represents everyone. Uh, I know many who had their lives transformed by grace in a, in a youth group in those days. But still, the criticism stings. The author writes, In the evangelical church, the impact that shaming can have on people's lives generally goes unacknowledged and sometimes even unnoticed within the communities in which it most regularly occurs. In some cases, shaming is so common, it is coiled around core beliefs, laced through theology, and twisted into doctrine, making it nearly impossible to see. Shame can become like the smell of our own homes, the hum of an air conditioner, the feel of a wedding ring. It's just there, which is when it's most dangerous. Because it is then that we are most likely to dismiss rather than deal with its dangerous effects. I don't know why, but this seems to be coming up in uh, all sorts of conversations lately. Uh, I was talking with a a young man recently. I didn't know him very well. He said he just graduated from a Christian college. And uh, he said, you know, uh, almost none of my friends go to church anymore. Uh, We all went to a Christian college and we don't go to church. And I I said, uh, well, why? And without thinking, he said, oh, it's just a shame-based culture. I'm a little taken aback by that. 
I don't think the church is always a shame-based culture. I've found a lot of grace in the church. But I do spend a lot of time talking about shame with my brothers and sisters on their Christian journey. Shame remains an enemy of my own soul, surprisingly, all these years later. Last week was a great week. We had a great board retreat, a lot of great meetings with people. There was one conversation, however, I wish I could get back. Did you ever have one of those? Well, at three in the morning, I woke up, and this strong voice said, Why on earth did you say that? You never should have said that. A leader never would speak that way. And it just kind of went down this spiral. That's shame. I was able to turn it around, realize it wasn't God, but it's something I still struggle with. Reading this book made me wonder in what ways I still use shame in my preaching as a carnal way to manipulate you to do God's will. Shame is a worthy foe, an all-too-common companion on our spiritual journeys. One friend said, for most of my Christian life, shame was like a solar eclipse. Shame was the moon blocking out the sun of God's love. So how do we heal shame? I want to explore that question with you uh, for the next four weeks. One way we begin to heal shame is to understand the difference between guilt and shame. And that's what Paul's contrasting here in in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He wrote this letter around 55 AD to the church in Corinth. He was in Macedonia. He had heard that there was division in the church, that there was questioning about the content of the gospel, his credibility as an apostolic messenger. That's all in chapter 2. So he writes them a letter to correct them. And he's worried about how they respond. And in the first part of chapter 7, we read that Titus came back and said they repented. And it's, it's okay. And so in verse 10, he writes a paragraph contrasting a healthy way to respond when we sin with an unhealthy way. And I think this is an important place to start as we think about healing shame. I really think it's important to understand the difference between guilt and shame because shame masquerades as guilt and many of us mistake the conviction of the Holy Spirit for the condemnation of shame. And you think the miserable feeling you always have and carry with you is God reminding you of your sin when it's not. That's why we need to think about this. So let's unpack this little verse here. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to a salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So when you and I sin, when we fail morally, spiritually, there should be a godly grief. The Greek word means sorrow, emotional distress. It is appropriate and even Needful when we have failed morally to feel some sort of emotional distress. Paul calls it a godly grief, literally in the Greek. It's a grief according to God. In other words, feeling guilty about something is actually part of God's plan for us. 
David wrote seven psalms. We call them the penitential psalms for 3,000 years. The people of God have confessed their sins because guilt is part of the Christian life. By the way, pray for Matt and I. We're having a really good conversation that's been spurred by some good conversations with you about the way we confess sin as a congregation. How do you do that? How do you do that in a way that is both honest but remembers what God has done for us in Christ. Psalm 32, one line. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin covered. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. My groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. So there are times when we feel heavy and sad as if God were pressing upon us. That can be an entirely appropriate response to sin. Uh, A friend told me that in the year 2009, for some reason, he was rocking along, everything in his world was working, and it was like God just pulled off the veil. And he said for three months in 2009, he became aware of how self-centered he was and how selfish he was and how poorly he was treating his wife, his children, his co-workers, and his fellow leaders at church. And he said for three months, every day he wept. And that that led him to a deeper encounter with God's grace. That's a godly grief. That's something God can use in our life. Paul says then that this this kind of godly grief leads to repentance. It leads us to turn, to change, to, to put away things that are killing us and to pick up things that give life. And then he says it leads to salvation. And he doesn't mean getting saved. Sometimes he uses that word to refer to the process of being made like God. So guilt is something God gives us to help us become sanctified, to help us grow spiritually. It's a healthy thing. It's a good thing. And then he says, salvation without regret. And that's where we often miss it. We often carry our sins around with us as if we had to atone for them ourselves. But we don't have to, because He forgives us. You know these verses, I'm going to read them again. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is made possible through the cross. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And because of this, we do not have to have regret. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know a man who drug his sins around with him like Marley's chains. He was a Christian, but he had done some things in his youth that he was very embarrassed by, and he was haunted by them, and they hovered around him like ghosts. And he went to a men's retreat up in the mountains years ago. And the speaker spoke about God forgiving sin. And for whatever reason, it came together that night. It clicked that night. 
And he said that he ran out of the room broken and, and determined once and for all to embrace the cross. And earlier in the day, he had seen a large cross on the campsite up in the woods. And in the night, he stumbled his way through the brush up towards the cross. And he wanted to lay at the foot of the cross and, and, and physically give all his sins to Christ at the foot of the cross. And an hour later, with brambles all over him, he finally gets to the cross. And there's a barbed wire fence around it. And he cries out, he says, God, I've come here to lay everything at the foot of the cross. Why did you put a barbed wire fence so that I couldn't get there? And he said, this is what God said. Because I want you to throw your sins over and the fence is there so you won't take them back. That's salvation without regret. Let's summarize what we've learned about healthy guilt. It's a sorrow over sin. It's a gift from God. It inspires us to change. It helps us become the people God made us to be. And it's fully forgiven at the cross. Now, let's look at shame. Worldly grief, we call that shame, produces Death. There is another way to respond to feelings of disruption in our spirit, that something is wrong, that we've done something wrong, that we're out of sync somehow. There's another way to respond. Paul calls it worldly grief. The Greek word is cosmos. And when it's used this way, it refers to a world system that is opposed to the Christian John 15, 8, Jesus says, If you were of the cosmos, the cosmos would love you, but I chose you out of the cosmos, therefore the cosmos hates you. And Jesus even says that there is a demonic dimension to the cosmos. John 12, 31, The ruler of this world will be cast out. And Paul says that demonic spirits energize the cosmos. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. So this is very important. The source of guilt is God. The source of shame is Satan. And Satan uses the world system... To shame us. And one of the ways he does that is that the world system tells us false stories about who I am and where meaning and purpose is found. And that system does it from the very beginning of our lives. And those lies, those shame narratives, deceive us and leave us in shame. I must be beautiful to be loved. I must be successful to have worth. If I'm not in a relationship, something is wrong with me. I should have been farther by now at this point of my life. My children must succeed or I'm a failure as a parent. Anyone who struggles with addiction is a failure. Do you know what your shame narrative is? What's the foundational lie that Satan would like you to believe that causes you shame? 
when I wrote uh, my first book, I was about ready to get published, and they were working on the jacket. And the agent calls, and he says, how big's your church? And I said, about 2,000. He says, so, okay, if we go with 3,000 on the jacket? Uh, and I, I said, well, I said 2,000. You're growing, right? Well, now, what, what's, the, what's the message there? A pastor of a bigger church is better than a pastor of a smaller church. That's one of my shame messages. It's funny. During this series, uh, also, uh, Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church planted us. They're looking for a pastor right now. They, it's taking longer than they thought, and they're running out of pulpit supply. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the pinch hitting, and I'm going to be out there doing this series for four weeks. It was so interesting. As I was in that big old church, I know I belong here. I love you most of the time. You love me. <laughs> you love me most of the time. <laughs> right, right. And I'm a, I've never been more content, fulfilled. I know I'm supposed to be here. But as I was sitting in that big old church and I heard this voice. You failed. Your best years are behind you. You were created to do something big. And look at you now. 150 people be there tonight. What happened to you? Now I know that's not from God. But that's my shame message. The best book I've read on shame is by Lewis Smeds. It's called Shame and Grace. And he says that guilt is a belief that I've done something bad. Shame is that I am wrong somehow. He says shame is a very heavy feeling. It is a feeling that we do not measure up and maybe never will measure up to the sorts of persons we were meant to be. The feeling, when we are conscious of it, gives us a vague disgust with ourselves, which in turn feels like a hunk of lead in our hearts, an invisible load that weighs our spirits down and crushes our joy. Hmm. Paul says that shame produces death. Judas was one of shame's victims. Um, All the disciples were knuckleheads on Good Friday, right? But somehow they get up, experience Christ's forgiveness, move on. Not Judas. He's destroyed by shame. Matthew 27. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and he said, I have sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. That's the main difference between shame and guilt. Guilt leads to life. Guilt leads to forgiveness. Guilt leads to wholeness, healing, hope, new beginning, restoration. Shame leads to death and despair and darkness. I ask a a couple folks to write me uh, how they've experienced shame and how God's healed them. 
I asked permission to, to share. One man wrote, After my father's death, I went down a path of depression and self-destruction, and I made poor choices. And this path led to feelings of shame for my lifestyle. It was like falling into a dark hole. Instead of feeling worthy and working hard to pull myself out of that dark hole of shame, I just settled into living in that dark place. It became my identity. Beloved, has that become your identity? Are you so used to that heavy, leaden feeling of disgust about yourself that you've just pitched a tent and you're living there? That's not God's gentle guilt. That's shame. Shame also isolates us, cuts us off. Adam and Eve, they were both naked and not ashamed. They rebel, experience guilt. They don't go back to God. They run away, Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid. That's what shame does. It makes us want to hide. It makes us want to tell secrets another, or keep our secrets. Another man began his shame story like this. I'm an addict. Shame has been my companion as far back as I can remember. And then he describes it. I knew I could not share my little secret. So I hid. I had a double life. Keep anyone from ever finding out who I really was. If a person is only as sick as their secrets, I was on my deathbed. So I want you to look back over the year and I want you to be real honest with yourself. As you look back over the year, is your life moving towards intimate community, vulnerability in safe places, connection, openness, transparency, knowing and being known, Or is your life moving towards increasing isolation, withdrawal, walls, cutting yourself off, and keeping secrets? Those are two very different paths. One begins with God gentle shame or gentle guilt. The other is from demonic shame. I just just want to linger here a moment more. Your secrets will destroy you. You don't need to share them everywhere. You don't need to share them with unsafe people. They will destroy you. You need to share them somewhere. With one friend. Come in and talk to one of the shepherds. Talk to me. Go to a therapist. You've got to do it somewhere. And if you're coming off the holiday and you're looking back and you know there's a secret, you know you're drinking a little bit too much, you know you're in a relationship that's just not right, you know you're buried in work and turning it into an idol again, whatever it is, tell somebody. 
Because Satan's purpose is to destroy you with it. So here's what we've learned about shame. It comes from Satan. Satan uses the world system to shame us. We learn shaming messages from the world system. These shaming messages are lies about where we find identity and worth. And shame kills. It isolates, drives us to despair, makes us feel that we are disgusting. Now, it's not that hard, really, to theologically discern the difference between guilt and shame. It can be very difficult in our own hearts to tell the difference. And and what what I want to submit to you is that many of us are confused about this. Many of us are mistaking deceptive shame for the convicting work of the Spirit. It's hard to tell. A woman who is the mother of adult children told me recently that she was reading a a book on listening. And I asked if I could share this. And and I said, how is this affecting you? And she said, well, it's actually been very hard. I said, hard? Why? You're a good listener. And she said, well, I'm thinking of all the ways I didn't listen to my children. It's so painful to think about now. I keep remembering conversations in my mind that I wish I could do over again. I hope they've forgotten them. Uh, The more I think about it, the, the worse I feel about those things. Is that guilt or is that shame? And as an aside, in my pastoral experience, shame especially targets us as we age with regret. My precious mother on her deathbed was tormented with lies about how she had failed me Nothing could convince her that she'd been a great mom. It was as if he sent a demon imp from hell by her hospice bed to whisper lies in her ears. And I've seen it again and again and again. Satan is a mean enemy. Mean. And these lies are especially hard on us as we age. So my friend will have to determine whether or not she's experiencing guilt or shame. I do want to end with five questions you can ask yourself to help you tell the difference between guilt and shame. One, does the heaviness I feel lead me to life or death? In other words, is this feeling leading me to freedom or bondage? Two, does the heaviness I feel help me change? Or keep me from changing? Three, what is the story I'm telling myself about this? Is this story consistent with God's story? Or have I allowed the world system to seduce me into believing a lie? Four, is this heaviness lasting too long? Am I trying to atone for my own sins? And five, is there a sweetness in this sorrow? Is it leading me deeper into God's mercy and grace? Or is my sorrow bitter, leading me deeper into isolation and despair? Let's pray.